and welcome to the Q York podcast, brought to you from our local church in the beautiful city of York in the UK. The message you're about to hear is from one of our services, which also feature great live music and relevant movie clips. These can all be found on our blog, so to make sure you're getting the full experience, feel free to head over to qyork.co.uk and select blog to find the relevant content. There's also a huge selection of talks and live music videos on our media page, as well as a donate button if you'd like to show your appreciation and enable us to keep producing free content like this. Finally, to stay up to date on new blogs and events at Q, you can sign up for emails by filling in your name and email address at the bottom of any page on the website. But right now, it's time for the message. From one Wonder Woman to another, sometimes it's not as easy to work out what a human is or what a person is than you might think, as illustrated by the problems that Wonder Woman was facing. More on her later, <laughs> as you would expect. So, I promised you something funner, as my daughter would say. Uh, so this is a bit funner than my last two talks, uh, which could be the same as worse, but, but we'll see, we'll see. So what is a human? It seems like a really simple question. And as I started doing the research for this talk, I found, I found it's a bit like a set of trapdoors that you keep falling through. But it's actually very interesting. And you'll probably know quite a few of the things that I'll say. Uh, but nonetheless, let's start with science. So we all know that science is chemistry, physics, and biology. So let's do some chemistry, physics, and biology, because I know that that's what you wanted. Yeah, we did the survey, more science, you said. So, what's a human in terms of chemistry? Well, uh, by mass. So this is by mass. You can do it by atoms as well, but I think we're all right with just one. We are 65% oxygen. We are 18% carbon, 10% hydrogen, 3% nitrogen, 1% calcium, and 1% phosphorus. And that's about it. That's between those six elements, that's 99% of us. And our total chemical value, if you're thinking of putting your friend or a member of your family up on eBay, is 500 pounds. So that's what we are chemically. Could I have the slide with the chemistry on it, please? I'm behind. Could we have the next one? Actually, no, let's stick with that one. Let's stick with that one. What about physics? This is weirder. This is weirder, and I know that Chris has talked about some of this in the past. Suzanne Bell at West Virginia University estimates that the average human body contains 6.5 octillion atoms. And that's 65 with 26 zeros after it, otherwise known as quite a lot. 62% of our atoms are hydrogen. 
and the nucleus of a hydrogen atom is like a fly in the Royal Albert Hall. And that means that almost all of us, atomically, is empty quantum space. Also, the atoms in our bodies are being replaced all the time. Some of them are only in our bodies for a few hours, some of them for a few days. The whole of our atomic structure is replaced in a decade. So if you did something really bad 11 years ago, you can, I think, with some legitimacy, say it was not you. <laughs> also, with the exception of a few atoms created by uh, radioactive decay, all the atoms that make us up have existed since the formation of the universe 4.5 billion years ago. So we are a bit older than we look, and those atoms that make up you have been in other things. You probably have atoms that have been in dinosaurs and plants and other people, including possibly people you don't like. Um, it's such a weird, weird thought. We replace them by breathing, by eating, and by drinking. So if you want to stop the process, just stop doing those things. What about biology? Now we can have, that's a bonobo, which is cute. You're allowed to go, oh, it's cute. Um, so we diverged from the line of chimps and bonobos somewhere between six and eight million years ago. When that happened, there were about 15 different species of early human, and they've all died out, except us. However, the Neanderthals only died out about 30,000 years ago. And you know that thing that shows like a monkey and then a cave person? All that is wrong. Because they coexisted with us, for most of the time that we have existed. But when I say coexisted, I don't just mean coexisted, because actually, if you're European, you are 5% Neanderthal. And I'll tell you what feels really good, and we are going to do it. Just say to the other people on your table, you're a bit of a Neanderthal. Just do it. Feels really good. Feels really good. You've been, you've been wanting to say it for years to some of those people. That's not true of Africans, by the way. Just Europeans. Our advanced features, though, evolved about a hundred thousand years ago, things like symbolic language, art, culture, that kind of thing. And I know that you probably know that we share 99% of our DNA with chimps and bonobos. What I didn't know, and maybe you did, is if you look at our genome, we also have some of the weird copies that have occurred 
that you also see in mice and dogs. And so we all have a common source in genetic terms because these odd duplications that you can see in mice and dogs are also in our own genome. And so it's just weird. It's just weird. Um, we're more like bonobos than chimps because bonobos are better looking, I think we can agree. They live in bigger groups and they're less aggressive. Apparently, if you have more than five chimps in one group, they start fighting. And it's my belief, perhaps, that Christians are closer to chimps uh, than bonobos, just based on my observations over the years. <laughs> so the truth is, biologically, scientists have some difficulty drawing the line between early humans and us, particularly as we learn more about the Neanderthals who do seem to have had art and some other things. Um, so that line's a bit blurry. And then the new kid on the block, science-wise, is neuroscience. And it's making waves in biology, psychology, philosophy, and AI. And one of the main things it studies is consciousness, which is called the hard problem of neuroscience because it's really hard to pin down. Thomas Nagel wrote a paper entitled, What is it like to be a bat? Because his idea is, and, and, and this is quite a well-established way of looking at consciousness, consciousness is to do with what it's like to be something. And that varies depending on what you're talking about. So what is it like to be us is different from what is it like to be a bat? What is it like to be an ant? What is it like to be a stone? And there's a big set of questions as to when consciousness stops and what do we actually mean by consciousness anyway. That's why it's a hard problem. Here's another weird fact. When we perceive things, our brain receives the signals from our senses at different times. And so it waits. So what you hear, what you see, what you feel arrive at your brain at different times. And your brain waits for the last thing to arrive before it splices it together, called binding, and then and only then do you experience it. So you're about half a second behind what's really happening. And a friend of mine who once took drugs said that the effect of psychedelics is it breaks down binding. So part of the weird senses that people get in drug taking is the breaking down of binding. So you no longer have an integrated experience of the world. That means most of our responses to things are too late. And that means that our subconscious is doing an awful lot more than we once thought. So when you drop something, catch it again, 
and then sort of become aware of what's happened, that's because your conscious mind was half a second behind the event, but, you, but your body responded and caught it. Which is interesting, but actually potentially has some philosophical implications, because what do we really decide? And what is actually just determined by our automated systems? And this is back to Danny's talk on determinism. However, our ability to reflect on our experiences is completely in our consciousness. Consciousness is also not the same as the self because our self also has all the experiences of our lifetime stored in our subconscious. And so it's not just consciousness that's us, it's all the things we've ever done and experienced and being, they're part of our subconscious. So it, it's really quite complicated. Some people think that consciousness is actually an illusion, and I'll come back to this, uh, but someone called, um, someone called Galen Strawson argues that that's absurd because the only way we can experience an illusion is in our consciousness, and the only place we can have a conversation about consciousness is in our consciousness, and therefore he considers that to be a self-invalidating claim. I'll return to it later. Two final things about the brain, because they're weird and interesting. We found something now called mirror neurons, and these are the parts of the brain that control social interaction. And someone called Jeff Colvin argues that the brain is designed much more for interaction than computation. We're actually primarily social creatures and our brain is designed that way, which is how we can excuse ourselves for not being that good at maths. And then finally, I just love this. In fact, it's the one thing I'll remember from the whole talk, which might be one more thing than you do, but scientists have absolutely no idea why we laugh. It performs no biological purpose. No one's got a clue. And I just love that because it's so central to our humanity, and yet it's so far completely beyond the reaches of science, and I'm really glad that there are some things that are. So, that's the science. What about other ways of looking at humans? <clears throat> Could we just do a flip of the slide, please? And another one, because that was about consciousness. There we go. Philosophers have been talking about what is a human for a very long time. And they tend to think of humans as a moral construct, as well as just a physical one. And so the branch of philosophy that deals with what is human is personhood. And that's slightly different, because in some ways you can define a human by saying they have human DNA, but what constitutes a person so Bothius, in the sixth century, said a person is an individual substance of a rational nature. And that seemed to work for a millennium. But then Descartes came along 
and split us in two and created the first dualism, uh, which Claire was talking about last week. So Descartes split the spirit and mind from the body. And most of philosophy ever since has been people trying to get rid of one or the other. So materialists suggest that the mind is just a product of the body and there's nothing separate about our minds and consciousness. Whereas people like Kant argued that the only things that are real are things we experience in our mind. So they were arguing on the two sides of the dualism, trying to make it one. But now we have new claims, and there's no reason to include this in the talk, except that I really like her name. Stephanie Ferret has <laughs> suggested, actually, even more narrowly than that, that a person is defined entirely by their brain, just their brain. Uh, and this is called brainhood. And it's emerging, it's emerging out of neuroscience. So you are your brain. So what is a person in the light of all that? Well, the most influential definition is by Anne Warren, which um, was actually made in 1973, saying that people should be, a person is conscious, can reason, has self-motivated activity, can communicate and has self-awareness. However, Peter Singer, who's a biologist and an animal rights campaigner, argues that personhood should apply to any member of the animal kingdom with self-awareness, the ability to plan, form alliances and relationships, express grief and anger, and learn sign language. Michael Tooley suggests that personhood develops over time. And people like John Noonan argue to the contrary that personhood exists in what he calls an existential pop. You're just a person, you weren't and now you are. And for him that happens at the moment of conception. And you say, well that's a load of theoretical, philosophical stuff. What has that got to do with anything? Well, personhood drives almost the whole of human rights and animal rights. Questions about abortion, euthanasia, animal experimentation, and the environment are all derived from definitions of personhood and lie at the bottom of so many of our arguments. But the good news is that you are about to solve it because we're gonna have a Christmas quiz that's not about Christmas. So, if we could go to, right, so what you are gonna do is different characters, let's call them that, are gonna appear and you have to decide, are they human, are they persons, or are they both, or maybe there's a bit of nuance. Okay? And just to illustrate why this is hard. By the way, the fact that they're fictional is not a factor. So I don't want to hear, oh, they're not persons because they're not real. Um, let's take Wonder Woman as our worked example. Wonder Woman. 
this is one of the trap doors. I'm thinking, let me just find out what, uh, what she is. Well, she's been two things. And then I got into a Reddit thread uh, amongst people who really should be doing other things with their lives. But what they're doing is debating who Wonder Woman is. Wonder Woman is either half human, half God, because she's the product of Zeus and Queen something. You know what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But it's possible that she's all gods. So she is either half human or not human. But I would say Wonder Woman is a person. So that's all I'm asking you to do. Each, each character that comes up, person, human, yes, no, maybe. Um, each of these represents an actual category of thing that is being debated. And so it's fun, and yet, uh, better be fun. Uh, but behind it is something a bit deeper uh, driving some of those conversations we were mentioning. So what I'm hoping we can do is you can discuss it on your tables as to what you think it is, have a table response. Um, I'll go through them briefly at the end. I'm hoping we can show each one for about, I don't know, 30, 45 seconds. Is that going to be enough? Let's start. Okay. Did you find that a bit harder than it might have seemed? Right, I've, I've got here to pep you up. I've got some jelly babies. And even though they sound like humans and persons, they are in fact neither and you can eat them. So uh, we'll, we'll start them moving around the tables. I've only got three, I've got limited resources. <laughs> so we're just gonna do a really quick debrief on this. If we could go back yeah, to the first one. So we talked about Wonder Woman and that was very straightforward. The next person or persons, so obviously Doctor Who, Doctor Who is from Gallifrey and so is an alien, not human, but I think we probably agree is a person or maybe persons, the extent to which his personhood is retained I think is an interesting question, but I would say it's mostly a no and a yes. And, and the area where it's debated is what if we find intelligent life, which we've been looking for for a long time, how would that change our conceptions of personhood? Next one. Robots, of course, there's a load of hysteria about um, has AI become sentient? Is it going to replace us? Uh, this is actually my day job subject. Uh, the answer is not yet. Uh, but if, if they were real, clearly they're not human, but C-3PO exhibits quite a lot of person-like characteristics, and some people, on our table at least, argue that R2-D2 did as well. And so the question as to when something artificial might be considered to have become a person is a very interesting question that we're just at the beginning of. Next one. Robocop, of course, was a person, 
and then is mostly a machine, the law has already evolved. So if something artificial as part of your person damages something or someone, it's you who's responsible. And, and so that extension to the law of legal personhood's already happened. Um, so I don't know is the answer here. Next one. This is um, the Black Panther, who is a human. Um, I put it in there because the debate as to whether black people are fully human um, is a shocking thing that has continued very late in history. And uh, I think it's a terrible, terrible thing, but it's part of the legacy of um, humankind and indeed the church debating those things. People have argued that black people don't have souls. Um, shocking and terrible things. But this is a human and a person. Next. Jesus. Let's just go through the first seven ecumenical councils and, and figure this out. Well, Jesus is fully human, according to the creeds, uh, but also a bit more. And definitely a person, although as we heard last week, a person involved in a three persons of the Trinity, and person is there used in the technical sense in the creeds, and so uh, quite complicated, and it took the church about a thousand years to try and figure out a provisional answer, so I think we can move on from that one today. Next one. That's a Neanderthal. Uh, 5% you. Is that a human? And is that a person? Most of us haven't met one, although there was some debate as to uh, some places you could go where you might. We're finding that they're more and more like us than we thought. So that's a debate in progress. Next one. This, of course, is at the bottom of an intractable, very difficult and very emotive discussion as to when a fetus becomes a person. Some people, and I mentioned it, say that there's an existential pop at the moment of conception. That person is a, is a person from then. Um, some people say it's a gradual process. It's, it's a hugely contentious issue. Next. Bruce Willis, very sad, has dementia. After this, we drive to my mom, who has dementia. And uh, of course, in, in lots of ways, she, I'll talk about my mom, has lost her attributes of personhood. But to me, and I think, I think to society, she's a person and will stay as a person. Uh, and so uh, I would argue uh, that you don't have to exhibit all those uh, classic features of personhood to be fully a person. Uh, but there is some debate about it, particularly over people in comas and this kind of thing. Next. So, of course, ABBA were human and they were persons, but these are their avatars. And if you go to, if you go to the show, you will find that they look 
more real in a very frightening way than if you go to a real gig. Um, and of course, they're neither human nor persons, but they're very convincing. And in the world in which we're living, this kind of thing is going to feature more and more. Next. So they're not human, but they're very intelligent. And so they fit Peter Singer's criteria for personhood in a, in a broader sense. And of course, there's big implications for how you might treat fellow creatures who exhibit those characteristics. Okay, so hope you enjoyed it. Hope it wasn't too depressing. Uh, Claire said she was hoping for an easier quiz because she likes to feel like she's winning. I'll remember that next time. <laughs> Most of the quizzes I've done in church, the answer is Jesus. And if you just, if you just keep saying that, you'll get at least eight out of 10, except for who is Jesus's mother. Um, so very quickly, and then we'll have another uh, conversation on our tables. What does religion and spirituality have to contribute to this debate? Of course, that's a massive subject in itself. I just wanted to, if we could just move on one, just pick up something interesting that's happening. So Buddhism and, and neuroscience are finding some common ground, um, and that's an emerging theme that you can see in the media. And uh, there's a really interesting conversation, it's on YouTube, between Dieter Jäger, who is a neuroscientist, and Lobsang Gongpo, who is a Buddhist monk. And they say the following. Neuroscience and Buddhism both discover that our self is made of multiple interacting parallel processes, many of which are subconscious. The concept of a unitary self arises as an illusion from our embodiment and our consciousness. And they go on to say, these insights have important implications for our understanding of free will as an illusion, but also of how the society we live in shapes important aspects of our decision-making. And once again, we're back in, in Danny's talk. The implications for this emerging discussion are huge because think of questions like legal responsibility. If we do not determine our actions, who is responsible for them? And this is becoming a very complex area. I would say watch this space because there's an awful lot to go on this as it begins to emerge. I have a point of view, but I'm gonna keep it to myself. So that's Buddhism and a bit of neuroscience finding some common ground. What about the monotheistic religions? So Islam, Judaism, and Christianity share a lot in common. And of course, when it comes to the creation narratives, uh, Christianity uh, adopts the Jewish understanding anyway. And Genesis 1, intriguingly, says this. Then God said, let us make humans in our image, according to our likeness. So God created humans in his image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. 
that I think I've just accepted for years and years that we're somehow made in the image of God. Unfortunately, when you start thinking about it, God is an infinite spirit, and we are a physically embodied something. And therefore, we're not really that much like God on the surface. And so, what is the image of God? I read a book on it, and very helpfully, this is the conclusion. The doctrine of the image day, the image of God, is multifaceted, multi-layered, rich, and constantly evolving, which I believe is academic for we don't know. But then, just in case you weren't confused, there's a parallel account in Genesis 2 that says this. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. The creation narratives take the physical, but also this non-physical breath of life that makes the person live and combines them into one narrative, somehow combining us with the image of God. And so there's something about God that's conferred to us, which makes us distinct, even though it's difficult to pin down what it is. Interestingly, N.T. Wright, who I know some of you like, is very skeptical about a lot of things we talk about, like the spirit, soul, body taxonomy. He considers those are merely perspectives on integrated whole humans. And he also says, and I think he's right, there's absolutely no evidence in the Bible for the immortal soul somehow being disconnected from the body at death. What the Bible talks about is the resurrection of the whole of us, including new spiritual bodies. And so the Bible sees us as very integrated, not in dualisms, even though there's perspectives of emphasizing different things that can be helpful. Whatever the image of God is, Genesis 9 tells us that it survived the fall. Because in Genesis 9, it says the reason you shouldn't kill another person is because they carry the image of God. And that means that they continue to carry the image of God even after the fall. And so all this talk down the ages of the corruption or loss of the image of God or doctrines like utter depravity, they are terrible distortions of the truth. And I, th I think they brought terrible pain to many people. But equally, there's a trend now in the name of inclusion that suggests that all of us now fully reflect the image of God exactly as we are. And for me, that takes away the whole hope of transformation and becoming because I hope there's degrees of reflecting the image of God and we can grow and develop. But I understand what they're getting at. I actually like what Claire said last week 
moving and merging our humanity with the divine like the mixing of colors to make a new shade. And I think the essence of what we see in the Bible is that this mixture of the image of God, something from and of the divine, and the earth, our physicality, combined together in a way that is completely integrated, actually is the human distinctive. And of course, you may not believe any of what I've just said. I'm merely trying to give you a perspective from Christianity, Judaism, and to some extent, Islam. But now we're going to have another very straightforward discussion on the tables. Can we capture the essence of humans in science alone? Are we more than physical machines? Something I was reading called as meat machines. What does religion and or spirituality have to add to our understanding? How much of that's healthy and how much of it is not? I'll leave you for a few minutes until we seem to be over the, over the peak moment of discussion. All right, I'm just going to wrap it up. You can, you can keep talking if you want to afterwards. But I'm, I'm just going to give you a Christmas thought to close. Given everything we know now and don't know about humans, when you imagine Christmas is about the incarnation, it's about God becoming human. For me, that's made that a bit more boggling, a bit more real, a bit more weird, um, but actually a bit more mysterious and amazing. And uh, I just want to finish with this quote because this is Michael Spencer's take on the incarnation and what it might mean. It says this, the incarnation is the complete refutation of every human system and institution that claims to control, possess, and distribute God. Whatever any church or religious leader may claim in regard to their particular access to God or control over your experience of God, the incarnation is the last word. God loves the world. It belongs to every human being. It's a gracious gift to every person, everywhere, religious or not. So maybe as we try and work out what a human is at the time of year when we celebrate God somehow becoming a human, we should remember that there's something strangely powerful about God entering the human world as one of us, presumably with the DNA copying issue from a dog and a mouse and all that goes with it. It's worth a bit more thought, but for now, thank you and Merry Christmas to you all. Thanks for listening to another Q York podcast. Now, if you've enjoyed what you've heard today, then we would love to hear from you. Feel free to drop us an email to info at qyork.co.uk and let us know who you are and where you're listening from. 
Don't forget there are blogs and all sorts of media to be enjoyed at qyork.co.uk, which are welcome to browse at your leisure. Until next time, enjoy the quest. <laughs>